Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me is commissioning editor Thea Leonarduzzi, now known by the new nickname of Sam. <laughs> Only to me and not really, but Thea did invite a distinguished TLS contributor to the podcast and received a polite, if wishy-washy, rejection addressed to Sam. Do you accept the nickname, Thea? Shall I try and what, make what it a do thing? You, what do you think? My guess is no, but I think you should always ask. You might say, you know, you've always wanted a nickname. You haven't really got one. <laughs> well, my mum my, my mom and dad purposefully chose my name so that no one could abbreviate it. It's, oh, like, from, it's pretty from impossible Thea. to abbreviate What was the Thea? childish nickname you had based on an old woman's name in Italian? Agrippina. Agrippina, yeah. Yeah. That's not, that's not caught on. I tried to make that a thing. <laughs> Sam's easier. But it is also the name of, of someone who works at the TLS, that's so true. it would only get confusing. It's confusing. I'll, I'll, on every level. Okay, I'll abandon it. I'll abandon it. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type POD1 in the offer code section and get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, we're going to reflect on a TLS edition this 4th of July week, and it's actually the 4th of July today when we're recording this, devoted to a celebration of American literature. Kicking us off is a review by David Bromwich of the second volume of Robert Frost's letters, covering a time in the 1920s when Frost was a poetic celebrity and in-demand lecturer. David will join us to tell us more and hopefully read us a poem or two. Bernadine Evaristo has reviewed the provocatively titled book Why I Am No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. She'll be here to discuss the state of race relations in this country as well as explaining the progress of an angry blog into a mainstream published book. To Robert Frost then. I remember reading Robert Frost for the first time at school. The poem was After Apple Picking. My English teacher, a wiry, white-haired man brimming with the naive belief that a class of hormonal 14-year-olds could be held in thrall by his poetry recitals, kept exhorting us to consider what was it really about. The pleasures of the harvest, the scent of apples, of course, but also perhaps something more significant and loaded, ideas of both leafy and lapsarian falls, of mortality, of the unfair of predestined fate where one might be discarded as of no worth. Frost once spoke of the pleasure of ulteriority, of saying one thing and meaning another, so he would have recognised the need for the question to be asked. 
He was also himself a jobbing itinerant teacher, as we learn from David Bromwich's review of volume two of his letters covering the period 1920 to 28. The money was good, $100 per lecture, and he once delivered 14 lectures in 14 days. His teachings seem to me to be a bit dauntingly Nabokovian. Here are a couple of quotes from him. Style in prose or verse is that which indicates how the writer takes himself and what he is saying. Or belief is better than anything else and it is best when wrapped above paying its respect to anybody's doubts whatsoever. To Frost, pedagogy was a benign assault. A master writer will invade younger writers to show them how much more they contain than they can write down which is a lovely way of putting it. David Bromwich joins Thea and me now. David, welcome. Um, what do we learn about Frost the Man from these letters? And it's, it's 1920 to 28 they're from, isn't it? Yes, it is. And he's a good letter writer. Uh, uh, quite a number of gifted poets, uh, novelists, writers of various sorts, um, don't put much of their best energy into letters. If you compare the enormous, not yet completed edition of T.S. Eliot's letters to Frost's, I mean, uh, that makes the point. Eliot is a a businessman, is uh, fronting for his career, uh, writes some personal letters, but he's very guarded and very ordinary, deliberately so, uh, in his letters. Frost not. There's just an abundance of personality in almost every paragraph he writes. Some of them are postcards. Some of them are just doing family business. His daughter's starting to run a bookstore. He's giving her advice. Um, his wife falls sick when they make a visit to England, and he writes home about that. So there are incidental matters. But a good deal of it is about, as you say, his teaching, which he took up in earnest uh, in the 1920s, and um, how to make a, a living out of being a poet when your poetry isn't quite doing it by itself. Uh-huh. Nevertheless, uh, Frost was about the closest we've had in this country to somebody who could who could support himself just on the sales of his poetry. He was a popular poet by the mid-20s. But he was interested in, you talked about the sort of T.S. Eliot's business brain, he was interested in the money he could make from lecturing at, at the same time. Very much so, and uh, he has a whole poem about that, more than one in fact, but the famous one from the Depression years. Uh, a kind of anti-union poem, in fact, and, and uh, cruel at its heart, but a very powerful and aphoristic poem called Provide, Provide, which he used to introduce with the line, uh, provide for yourself or someone else will provide for you. Um, so there's that, uh, I call it in the review somewhat euphemistically, radical self-trust. But there is a, um, a, a belief that you, you have to make... Uh, you have to make a life for yourself and you have to guard it with care and that this uh, uh, takes a great deal of um, cunning. And, and did, in your view, did the, the lecturing distract from the poetry? Was he able to strike a balance between keeping enough time to, 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 to write the poetry as well as uh, performing his other duties? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, Frost complains uh, a good many times in this volume of letters Uh, about how distracting he has uh, come to find his circuit of lecturing, giving poetry readings, uh, Phi Beta Kappa poem at Harvard, the various other things he undertakes, all of them sort of honorific and all of them uh, paying well, but that he doesn't have enough time for poetry. Then again, he also comes up with the idea of buying another farm and turning farmer again. So there are, I mean, he distracts himself, he distracts himself with what you might call excuses for not writing poetry and yet the poems come uh, occasionally 
they surprise him by how uh, well they come uh, just at a moment when uh, he had felt quite dry. So I don't, I don't think, in fact, that the, the lecturing and all that um, deprived us of a great many uh, poems by Frost. These are not the, the very best years of his poetry, and yet there are masterpieces in these years. So, so what are the notable poems of the period then? Uh, well, one is uh, uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. I Another love that. Is, I, 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 is that because I love that? But is that a quite a hammy thing to love, or is that a legitimate um, oh, work a, of genius? I think it's a great. It's a great poem, and he wrote it almost in a breath. He wrote it as he testifies, and the editors of this volume, who are good scholarly editors, seem to agree with him. He wrote it at the end of a long night writing, uh, which had begun with three hundred lines of a sort of garrulous. Uh, enjoyable but lightweight poem called New Hampshire, written in blank verse as a kind of dramatic monologue, and then ended uh, the following morning with writing this, this poem, uh, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. And he, um, he had an, an interesting relationship with God, or with the Christian God. Can, I mean, did he write much about that in, in the letters, and, and how does it figure in the poetry? Frost, the Frost described himself as a pagan. Um, much as early Wordsworth did, as Keats, who I suppose was one of his largest influences, uh, described himself as a pagan. I don't think Frost was Christian. Uh, he never really pretended to be, but he observed the pieties of community and making his belief sound a bit more charitable, a bit more Christian-like than it really was. Um, so I, he has a, a strong interest in what to say, uh, the powerful forces in the universe and in nature that are beyond our knowledge. Uh, the name God might have uh, struck him as uh, a perfectly fine name to use for it. But he says in, in at least one letter that uh, the Old Testament interests him much more than the New. Mm, and yet he's not a Jew either. <laughs> yeah. I suppose I'm thinking as well of um, Frost's famous Christmas card, which came every year. He likes the idea of Christmas, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Just without the religion. I don't, yeah, there's, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Let's think about him as a lecturer for a moment, if we may. I try and imagine what it'd be like to be lectured by Robert Frost. And, and it occurs because I've read the, the Nabokov lectures from the, the 50s at Cornell, I think it was. Uh, what sort of lecture would he have been? Would he have been a very imposing, aphoristic I uh, figure, or would he have been quite a warm and, and, and collegiate one? Uh, warm is a word that seldom comes up in describing Frost. Um, <laughs> but strong, energetic, memorable, um, captivating, those are adjectives. I don't think he was an academic or a learned lecturer in anything like a way resembling Nabokov, from what I know about Nabokov's career uh, at yeah. Cornell. Uh, he wrote down his lectures, and two books of them, as you know, were published. Uh, I don't think Frost wrote out his lectures. And the, the way he talks about his, uh, and we should distinguish, the public lectures are sort of set pieces. Some of them do get survive in manuscript form, and there's their outlines and so on. But the courses he taught at Amherst, uh, at Michigan, at Bowdoin College, uh, elsewhere, mostly in New England, the courses he taught were seminars, and he liked to draw in a, a small group of what he took to be gifted students and bring out what he thought was uh, capable, what he thought was uh, potentially original in them. So the, the seminars often consisted of conversations where Frost would mention 
poetry that he loved, would quote it. He had a great deal of poetry, Shakespeare and Milton in particular, committed to memory. And uh, so you, you are to imagine, I think, this sort of conversational medium where the poet is talking to young possible poets and trying to draw them out. Uh, it's much less academic than you would get from an ordinary literature teacher or even a great teacher like Nabokov who is writing himself. And he mentions this, you quote this thing about him invading younger The master writer will invade younger writers to show them how yes, much more they contain. In that, passage, in that passage you read, it's an extraordinary use of the word. Frost, in all his practice of poetry, prose, persuasion, letter writing so as to get better fees uh, from a group of poems he sends to an editor. He ha he's a character of extraordinary aggression. And I think that this is, uh, there's an, an agonistic, if you will, yeah. an idea of the necessity of conflict in life. And he tries to instigate it when he can. And this seems to have been part of his idea of teaching. You could call it Socratic, but there's an air in Socrates of, of, of questioning, of back and forth. In Froth, there seems to be a bit of fight in it all mm -hmm. the time. You mentioned the defeat of the will was a favorite subject by him, I guess. What, what do you mean by that? Is that in the poetry, the life, both? My impression is that he's rather fatalistic about how hopes in life are disappointed, but you have to fight against that anyway. One of his favorite poets, and he says this in an early letter that appeared in volume one of this excellent Harvard edition of his collected uh, letters, uh, one of his favorite poets is Hardy. And I think that mm. view of human beings so placed in nature that they are bound to feel that they have not succeeded. I think there's a good deal in common between Frost and Hardy and also between Frost and a, and a New England poet he admired greatly, uh, Edwin Arlington Robinson. We have a piece in the paper alongside yours uh, about Henry David Thoreau because it's, it's the bicentennial of his birth this week or, or next week, certainly in July. I'd like to talk about some of the literary judgments in the letters, if that's okay. What did, let's start with Thoreau. What did, uh, what did Frost make of him? He writes to a younger poet who has praised Thoreau in a letter to Frost, that Walden, as far as he is concerned, is the uh, high watermark of American literature. And it's surprising and interesting to find Robert Frost saying this in the 1920s. Thoreau already had a following, already had a reputation. These years, the 1920s, are the age of the revival of American literature um, in books by Lewis Mumford and uh, Van Wyck Brooks and others. But it's, it's rather early for somebody to be saying that. Frost is an early, pretty unqualified admirer of Thoreau, as he also is of Melville. So I should say the originality of his taste is one of the interesting things uh, in these letters, too. Uh, and, and he, of course, in turn has an influence on what people take to be major American literature uh, in the generations to come. But is it perhaps not surprising that, you know, Frost's connection to the land and, and a sense of the land should attract him towards Thoreau writing, you know, you know not, not the same thing, but, but certainly in that area? Yes. Uh, and something else about Thoreau, besides the, the extraordinary minuteness and attentiveness of his knowledge of nature in New England, which Frost shared, it's also something about the speaking voice. Thoreau in Walden, above all, but in, in a lot of his essays and in, in his uh, Cape Cod and other books, Thoreau is the most conversational of writers and uh, has a kind of pace and ease and, I don't know, ambulating uh, rhythm to his 
prose that's new. It's new in American writing. It's new in, in English prose. And Frost felt that, and I think felt the sharpness and the tang of it, and um, yeah, would have felt an immediate affinity. Uh, and one of the, the, the striking things I think uh, that we, we talk about later on in, in the paper is that Thoreau got to the point where his journal became almost an end in itself. It began as this quarry for ideas, which he turned into other works of prose, but he became this very confessional writer where he was writing almost for himself. He was writing in his journals of his intense reactions, which I can again imagine uh, chiming with with a poet like Frost? I think so. Uh, the difference is that Frost was ambitious for publication yeah. and to be known uh, from early on and, you know, went to England uh, in part, I think, to come to know the people who were making the poetry and the literature of his time in the years just before the First World War began and into the first year of, the, of that uh, war. That's part of his plotting with his life. And it did work out well for him. He found an English publisher, an eccentric one, who held him to contracts he didn't want to abide by later on, David Nutt. But his first two books got published in 1913-14, and a third book from that, uh, Mountain Interval, in 1916. So he had English admirers of some importance, like F.S. Flint and Lascelles Abercrombie and, and others who are better known now, Robert Graves, Yeats, Pound. So... All that was there for Frost. You don't find Thoreau negotiating for publication. No. <laughs> anyway, Thoreau had a mentor and, and, in a way, guide Emerson. And yeah. with Emerson's help, Thoreau found his way to some sort of renown. But without that, he would have, uh, he would have been a private writer entirely. I'm struck by this notion of the poet as a public figure. We've got a, an un, previously unpublished lecture by T.S. Eliot, uh, in the paper uh, as well this week and there's, there's thousands and thousands of lines of his writing that's never been published because he spoke so often and it strikes me that was that of its time this uh, a role that was embraced often by poets where they saw their role as being these public figures going out giving public lectures uh, T.S. Eliot apparently never really turned anything down would always be you know if someone said come out on a wet, on a wet Wednesday afternoon to talk to a certain group of people he'd be there talking <laughs> Is, is, is that a sort of the role of the poet as a public figure? I will read this lecture in the TLS with great interest. <laughs> Frost, of course, is a completely different kind of public figure. Eliot's posture is to be, you know, of his time, the literary dictator, the arbiter of taste. It, he may be even overplayed it to such an extent that he got weary of it, uh, the, the kind of authority that was granted to him. Frost is unique, a phenomenon to himself, and he wants to be known as a, a cracker barrel philosopher, um, as a, an aphorist uh, of a sort that people can uh, take home with them for his you know, proverbial wisdom. He spoke to all sorts of audiences, yeah. audiences up and down the culture that Eliot would have scorned. So he embraced populism, you think, for Frost? Populism, no. Um, oh. he, Frost is a, a Yankee Republican, and his politics are conservative. He, he descends from a father who was, uh, had Copperhead sympathies, which is what we call them if they rooted for the South in the Civil War, a rare thing in New England. Yeah. Um, so, no, Frost is, um, even though he read uh, at the JFK uh, inaugural ceremony and was happy to be accepted by a young and literate president, his politics are conservative uh, throughout. He's anti-New Deal and I think just extraordinarily skeptical of 
the state or society in any organized way doing anything for the person. It gets in your way, was his feeling. And that didn't translate into right-wing populism either. Well, let's, uh, let's end on the poetry then. You promised us a reading or two. So uh, what, what are you going to read for us? Here is a poem called uh, Dust of Snow from the volume uh, New Hampshire. And it's, it's just a, a perception, a, a point of observation, a sort of epigram. The way a crow shook down on me the dust of snow from a hemlock tree has given my heart a change of mood and saved some part of a day I rued. And I'll give you a second poem about a different kind of dust. This is a sort of memory of his childhood in San Francisco. His father died when he was 11. He left San Francisco. They, they came to the east. But he remembered. And it's called A Peck of Gold. Dust always blowing about the town, except when sea fog laid it down. And I was one of the children told some of the blowing dust was gold. All the dust the wind blew high appeared like gold in the sunset sky. But I was one of the children told some of the dust was really gold. Such was life in the Golden Gate. Gold dusted all we drank and ate. And I was one of the children told... We all must eat our peck of gold. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. David Bromwich, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Good talking to you. Yeah, I'm I'm interested about this, where Frost stands now, because where where did you get Frost? Where where was he sort of pushed upon you as a as a poet of note uh not until university first year we didn't we didn't do any frost at school i was just yeah i was just thinking now how nice it was to hear it read because i think when you see it on the page when you study it you see the rhyming uh pattern yeah and i think that can can lead one to think oh well it's it's very simple poetry but the level of craft yeah. that it takes to, to pull that off is, is what really singles Frost out. Well, I think that, that, and that's true that stopping by woods on a snowy evening, that the, the last stanza of that yeah. um, is exactly that, that sort of... To make the resonant. rhyme seem natural yeah. somehow. And I was talking to um, people in uh, the paper, Bob uh, Potts, who's in, um, obviously very interested in poetry um, and a former poetry editor. And he was saying how Frost has this unusual stance of being both liked by people in a popular fashion, but also admired by people who normally admire only the, the, the most, not esoteric, but the most pointed in their craft, you know. Mm. So, so he seems to cross all boundaries mm. uh, as a poet, which I, think, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's a natural poet, a modernist. Yeah. Um, you know, he's very influenced by imagist poetry, a classical poet. But he has none of the difficulty of modernism. But he has the difficulty of emotions. Yeah. He has emotional difficulty. Um, we were talking before about which poems we remember most. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned Stopping by Woods, and I thought of Home Burial precisely for that, yes. because of his ability to capture the difficulty of the emotion between the husband and wife. So it's a husband and wife who are sort of failing to communicate following the death of, of their, their young that's child. That's right, that's right, yeah. And so you get the difficulty of the grieving, but then also the difficulty of, of these two people coming together and talking it out, the failure to meet in the middle, and, and, and the way he compresses that complex and heartbreaking emotion into this 
simple poem yeah, of, of natural speech. It's the deceptive simplicity is the, is the, is yeah. the key, though, isn't it? That you're right. It, it's 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 always suggesting more than it, than it simply says. Yeah. yeah, it's lovely. Well, and it's very nice. David has a beautiful resonant Absolutely. American voice. Absolutely, I think we should have more of that. More of that resonant poetry ringing throughout. Shall I read some poetry? No. no. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In February 2014, Rennie Edo-Lodge, a black feminist, working-class, London-born woman, wrote a blog post that began... I'm no longer engaging with white people on the topic of race. Not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates our experiences. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is poured into their ears. This emotional disconnect is a conclusion of living a life oblivious to the fact that their skin colour is the norm and all others deviate from it. At best, white people have been taught not to mention that people of colour are different in case it offends us. Now, the post went viral and a book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, was commissioned. It's just appeared in the UK and will be published in America in December. Bernadine Evaristo is a novelist, poet, creative writing professor and activist responsible for not just talking about the lack of diversity in British society and the arts, but also doing something about it through a number of literary initiatives, which no doubt we'll hear a little bit about. Bernadine has written a review of Edo Lodge's book in this week's TLS and she joins us on the line now. Uh, Bernadine, hello. Hi. Hi. Um, so the, the title of the book, it's obviously a provocation because, I mean, talking to white people about race is a significant part of this. So can you tell us a bit about the book and what it's aiming to do? It's a very interesting book, I have to say, because what it's trying to do is it's trying to explain how racism works and impacts on people of colour, in particular black people in Britain, as opposed to in America. 
So it's very, very British focused. And I think that's the mo- one of the most important things about it, because conversations around race and racism tend not to happen as much in this country as in America. And to actually have a, you know, a young black woman, she's in her 20s, writing a very serious book about racism, feminism, class, the intersection between all these issues is, um, I don't want to say it's groundbreaking, but it's certainly something that refreshes the debate around uh, these issues in this country. So she's really trying to explain to people how racism works. She gives examples. It's The book is part it's kind of the stylish journalistic, um, but it's also personal. She talks about herself. She talks about her own experiences. And she's been uh, driven to write the book because she said that she got so frustrated at trying to explain how racism worked to people, uh, white people, and they didn't understand it. And so she decided that she had to explore it in greater depth. And, and this book is a result of that. And so she, she breaks it down into seven chapters. We get histories, the system... What is white privilege, fear of a black planet, the feminist question, race and class, and then there's no justice, there's just us. So I wonder if you could sort of pick out one of the strong points there. I think probably the system, which is she sort of delivers a 101 on structural racism. um, And it's very clearly written. One of the things uh, it seems she wants to do with this book, in fact, she says she wants to do with this book, is to be accessible to make things very um, easily understood by, by all kinds of people. And so she, she delivers this, um, you know, essay on structural racism, um, which explains how it, okay, it's kind of replaced what we used to call institutionalised racism, but she explains it as not just being restricted to how racism is manifested by institutions, but also how it's manifested in our everyday lives the choices people make, for example, when they're employing people or when they see a black person walking, a young black man walking towards them on the street and they cross the road and so on and so forth. And I think she delivers on that extremely well. Because you you quote her saying white people moving through the world blissfully unaware of their own race until its dominance is called into question. Is, is, Is the aim of this to have white people read this book so that ignorance exists no longer is that a is that a purpose of the book do you think aiming at that audience i think it has to be really but actually it's also interesting for people who aren't white because not everybody is well versed in understanding at a more complex level how these kinds of oppressions if you like work i mean i, I do know people of color who've read it and have really enjoyed it um, because it, it explains how it works to everybody, I suppose. So, yeah, it seems to be aimed at white people, but I think its readership is wider than that. It makes it makes the title particularly ironic in well, some yeah. ways, doesn't it? It is ironic, you know, and it's um, it's it's a great title because it's so provocative. Um, it came out of a blog post which she wrote in 2014, where she was just expressing her, expressing her frustration at. Um, trying to trying to you know convey to people what it's like to be a black person and, and how racism works and she wrote the blog post that went viral and at some point I guess the publishers came calling and and the book was then you know the, the post was then developed into a book um, but in fact she said one of the things she says is since she wrote the blog post she's done nothing but to talk to white people about race that, that's something that's quite interesting about the title it sort of suggests that was that there was once a time when she and maybe we collectively were talking about race more I mean as, as someone 
who started uh, you started your writing career in the 1980s. What what shifts have you noticed in terms of the, the quantity and quality of that sort of discussion? I yes, you know there have been changes and developments. I would say that when I was coming of age in my 20s, that the conversation around race was much more to do with the kind of frontline racism that black people experienced at that time, which might be, you know, the sus laws when black people, especially young black men, would be picked up by the police. Uh, It might be uh, racist violence and so on and so forth. Um, I think what's happened now is that that conversation only really resurfaces when there's something like the Stephen Lawrence murder, and even that was 20 odd years ago. But the more subtle nuances of racism, I don't know if we've ever really had that conversation. The difference now, since the Black Lives Matter movement in America, is that I think, you know, the media is in particular, and some of our institutions are taking race a bit more seriously. So the conversations that happen um, outside of the so-called mainstream have, are now filtering into the mainstream. So a book such as Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race is being published by a major publisher, Bloomsbury. And I think a few years ago that wouldn't have happened. Perhaps before the Black Lives Matter movement, that wouldn't have happened. And can you chart a <clears throat> progress within the country of the country becoming somehow less racist or is that a kind of pleasing fiction because I was looking into um, you know look at some of the racism very much of the 80s the police for example you know which led eventually to the McPherson report and after Stephen Lawrence of the institutional racism and you might think things have have got a lot better now but then I was looking at stop and search statistics and and a black person is six times as likely to be stopped as a white person Um, is it possible to sort of chart areas where things have got better and got worse or is that sort of difficult to do? I mean, I I don't really know a lot of the statistics, but um, so I can only talk about my impression of things. I would say that in some ways we are less racist. You know, if you look at a lot of the institutions, there's a lot more inclusion than there used to be. There are a lot more people of colour in Parliament, for example. You know, representation of people of colour on television, I don't know about the statistics behind the scenes, is certainly a lot better. So in some senses, I feel that we have become less racist. In other ways, I think we, you know, we're as racist as we ever were. And I think one of the interesting things about the campaign uh, to leave the EU, some of the bigotry that was being um, espoused by some of the political leaders has sort of unleashed this sort of racist gene in, in certain sections of society. And certainly from from um, anecdotal evidence, there's a lot more of the kind of racism on in-your-face, street-level racism that we didn't see, you know, um, before the EU referendum. And it's sort of come back. And what it makes me feel is that we're all bigoted in one way or another. But if, if we're given permission to express it, then it can come out and then you can feel as if there haven't been, you know, people haven't shifted as much as we thought they did. That's such a big question to answer. And I think the statistics are what we have to look at when we look at that. So as you say, stop and search, that's one example that perhaps we haven't moved as far as we we should have done. I'm a professor in the university. I'm a black woman. I'm something like the 19th black woman professor in in a British university. There are 17,000 professors in a British university. So you can see that there are still huge obstacles to overcome. Which sort of makes it so clear that there has to be a shift a stage further in terms of, I mean, Edo Lodge's 
book, it seems to me the equivalent, her getting the book deal, so to speak, it seems to be the equivalent of a writer setting off fireworks all around herself and generally making it very hard for publishers to ignore her. So it makes me wonder, I mean, how much is being done by, you know, so-called gatekeepers in publishing or whatever to actively root out talent still in its early stages? And how diverse are these gatekeepers themselves? I'm talking about the educators. Yes, well, they're not. But, you know, in the last couple of years, there have been... um, some very interesting initiatives and we'll see where they where they take us so you know some of the uh, big publishing houses have launched schemes where they're absolutely aiming to diversify uh, hopefully the workforce but also the people that they're publishing and that's very interesting and I don't think we've had this kind of development happening in several publishing houses ever before so one hopes that um, things will change but we'll see you know in the 1980s there were all kinds of schemes that were around, you know, that the Arts Council, for example, led on, that were around to develop black people in the arts as managers, as theatre directors, as television producers, and so on and so forth. And these schemes collapsed, and the demographic didn't change. So it's going to be interesting to see where that happened, what happens with that. One of the projects that I um, set up, um, it was actually in 2007, what I did was I, I, I got the Arts Council to produce a report to see how many poets of colour are being published in the UK. And the report revealed that under 1% of poetry books were by poets of colour in the UK. So I then initiated a scheme called the Complete Works and uh, run by an organisation called Spread the Word, now led by somebody called uh, Dr Natalie Teitler. And the scheme aimed to take 10 poets over a period of one or two years and to have them mentored by some of Britain's leading poets and networked into the poetry scenes and to bring them up to publication. We've had 30 poets who have gone through the scheme and they're just doing fantastically. They're winning some of the top prizes. Most of them are publishing books and it's been hugely successful. I would like to see that happening with the fiction world. What happens with fiction in in my lifetime is that there are these... um, you know, sort of trends that happen where black fiction becomes popular. It happened in the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s. Black fiction becomes popular. Lots of new, always young writers rise to the surface. And then 10 years later, practically everybody has disappeared. So so there are new writers coming through at the moment. And let's hope that some of them, you know, develop lifelong careers. That's a good place uh, to, to, to leave it, Verity. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. Great to have someone who's got such a range of, you know, such a long experience. Well, actually, I was going to ask about that. We ran out of time, but I get the sense possibly that Rennie Edo Lodge probably doesn't give as much credit to the people who came before her. Yeah. Fighting the same sort of battles, the same sort of ways. Yeah. With, as, as, as Bernadine was just saying, some, some successes and some battle scars. But reading the review, there's a sense that possibly the book doesn't quite recognise her. Exactly. And, and Bernadine makes the point in her piece that, that black British history must be repackaged for every subsequent generation which is a point that a previous reviewer has made as well i think it's a known a known known i need to see how many people buy this book i think um, it's doing very well is it yeah I think it's, it's, doing great, it's certainly got people talking it's a great is, title it's just an interesting provocative and that can work in two ways some people yeah. will be so provoked that they won't buy it and some people will be provoked into buying it so it'll be interesting to see whether that what that gives us in the end of it Uh, that's all we have time for this week thanks go to David Bromwich and Bernadine Evaristo do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition 
of the paper, which celebrates the vast expanse of American literature, Frost and Fitzgerald, Ashbury and Pound, Black Reappropriation of Dickens, the anniversary of the birth of Henry David Thoreau. Do have a look and buy a copy. And tweet this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please do review us on iTunes next week. The TLS looks at the world of politics and economics. We will bring you our contributors' thoughts on corruption and Brexit. The two may even be connected. Until then, from Sam and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.